Okay, we good? All right. Yeah, I haven't been here for a while. Um, probably been about two years, I think. And it's it's not for a lack of Mike asking me because he's he's been after me hot and heavy to get me back up here. Uh, I've turned him down several times, and the reason being is that for probably about two years, I've been wrestling with a topic in my head that I've wanted to talk about, but I didn't want to talk about until I was ready to talk about it, right? And I didn't want to get myself sidetracked with other subjects until I kind of worked this all through in my head. And so what I'm talking about this morning is the, the topic of eschatology. And if you're not familiar with that term, it's the study of the end times. Now, I was raised in a setting that um, we talked a lot about eschatology. I was raised in a, a very charismatic evangelical setting. And we talked a lot about things like the rapture, tribulation, Armageddon. Um, is everybody here familiar with those terms? We're all good? So I don't have to go right back to square one? Okay. So I grew up uh, being taught those, those kinds of things. And for a child to be taught those kinds of things, it was not fearful, it was terrorizing. Right? Because there were many times where I'd come home to an empty house, and the first thing I would think was, <laughs> I've been left behind. <laughs> right? And, you know, I mean, as we get older, you look back on it, you laugh, and that's fine. But as a child, it was terrorizing. Right? And so, I've been on this grace journey for probably almost as long as I was taught all the ugly stuff. So about 25, 26 years I've been on this grace journey. And throughout this whole grace journey, I've been not just learning truths, I've been unlearning the mistruths, right? I want to I say lies, and some of them are. Some of them are just misinterpretations, some of them are mistruths. But I, along with learning truths, I've been unlearning other things. And... This whole subject of eschatology is probably the biggest elephant in the room for me. It's kind of like the last major hurdle that I have to kind of sort out in my head and figure this out, right? Because there's things that I just didn't feel added up uh, between what I'm reading in the Bible and what I've been taught as a child. And so I've been a long time sorting this all out. And it's, it's weighed really heavy on me. It's occupied my thoughts for a couple years now. Uh, the first thing that I want to say this morning is I am not representing any ministry in what I'm teaching here this morning, nor am I using any material from any ministry here this morning. What I did was I did a total reboot. I went right back to God's Word, searched the Scriptures. I did not use anybody's opinion on it. And I used God's word, and I used historical fact. And I put them together, and believe it or not, they fit like a glove. So I want to show you that this morning of what I found. All right. I want to read to you Matthew chapter 24, 
the whole chapter. And the reason I want to read the whole chapter, I see. (laughs) The reason I want to read the whole chapter is this. The problem with eschatology that I've seen over the years, the teaching of the end times, is that teachers and preachers tend to cherry pick verses, right? They'll pick a verse from over here, they'll pick a verse from over there, and and one up over here, and they'll mash it all together, and they say, well, this must be what it all means. It does not. And so I want to get this all in context so that we truly understand what's happening here. And the first thing I gotta do is get this thing working. I might need some help with this. Is the green button the power button? There we go. All right, got it. Okay, so Matthew chapter 24, reading from the NIV version. Um, There is no perfect version um, dealing with eschatology that I've found so far, but this isn't too bad. So uh, Matthew chapter 24 says this. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Now, chapter 23, he was in this temple, the, the temple of Solomon, and he was in the temple and he was given the Pharisees, the Sadducees, everyone, one awful tongue lashing. And we're probably going to touch on that right at the end of this. But now, here he is. He's just left the temple. His disciples are with him. He's walking away from the temple. And the disciples turn his attention back to the temple buildings. And Jesus says to them, Do you see all these things? Talking about the buildings. Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming of the age? Come on. Okay. So Jesus answered, Watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that, not, that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. And you will be hated by all nations because of me. Now, who is Jesus talking to here? No. The disciples. And that is a mistake that a lot of teachers make, is that they teach that the Christians will be handed over and will be persecuted and killed. No. Jesus is talking to the disciples. And he's saying, you guys are going to be handed over and persecuted and killed. Okay? And they were. Every one of them. The only one that survived his death sentence was John. He was boiled in oil twice. That was his death sentence, and he survived the boiling twice. And so they uh, exiled him to the island of Patmos, where he wrote the book of Revelation. But he was the only one to survive. He did get a death sentence. He was the only one to survive. All the other disciples were persecuted and killed. Okay? At the time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. 
Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow old, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Now, whoever stands firm to the end will be saved is something grossly misinterpreted. And also the other things grossly misinterpreted is uh, that the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Here's the problem. When Jesus said that, the whole world existed or consisted in their minds of all the countries surrounding the Mediterranean Sea. That was the whole world to them, right? So the whole world at the time that Jesus said this consisted of basically northern Africa, right up through Europe, and including Britannia, England, and, and then from Spain on the west over to the Middle East was basically the extent of the whole world in their minds. They didn't know anything beyond those borders. They didn't know there was more people in the world. And the population of the world at the time in their minds was about 300 million. And most of it was ruled by Rome at the time. Okay? So when we're looking at verses like this, we have to understand that. And we have to realize that this verse is not talking of the known world now. It's talking of the known world then. Okay? All right. So when you see standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation, as spoken through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then let those things who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now first off, I hope, I don't know if we all understand uh, where uh, Judea was, what it was. Okay, Judea at the time is what Israel is today. Okay, so back then in, in biblical times, it was not called Israel, it was called Judea. Ultimately, the Israelites were forced out of Judea. They won that country back in just not that many years ago, in the 1950s, right? And at that time, they called it Israel. Okay, back then it was Judea. So let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of their house. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in the winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. In other words, and you'll, you'll understand this as we get deeper into this, Israel will not be totally wiped off the map. The, the Israelis, the Jews, okay? That's basically what Jesus is saying here. I'm going to shorten those days of, of the war, and we're going to we're going to have some of you be able to survive this. At the time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it, for false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you ahead of time. <clears throat> so if anyone tells you, there he is, out in the wilderness, do not go out, or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, the vultures will gather. 
Immediately after the stress of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven and with power, with power and great glory. This is the second coming of Christ, right? Okay? The, uh, the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and he'll come on clouds in heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. This is the great resurrection. Okay? Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that, that it is near right at the door. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But about the day or the hour, no one knows. Not even the, the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in com coming of the Son of Man. From the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding at the handmill, one will be taken, the other left. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come, but understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time the night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let the house be broken into. So if you must... You also must be ready because the Son of Man will come in an hour that you do not expect. So basically when it said, uh, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away, Jesus was kind of done going through the sequence of events. Now he's just kind of come back and is recapping, expanding on what's going to happen. Okay? Uh, who then is the faithful and wise servant from the master has put in charge of the servants in the household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so. When he returns, truly I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time, and then he begins to beat his fellow servants and eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on that day when he does not expect him and at an hour when he is not aware. He will cut him to pieces and assign him to a place with hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. All right. Let's do a recap. The temple and the temple buildings will be destroyed. There will be a lot of messianic deception. People saying, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Messiah, and it's just false messiahs. There will be wars. There will be famines. There will be earthquakes. Disciples will be persecuted and put to death. Many will turn away from the faith. faith. There will be false prophets, deception, wickedness. There's a warning to flee to the mountains when the destruction is approaching. Keep watch as one will be taken, the other left behind. It will be a dreadful time of destruction and tribulation with weeping and gnashing of teeth. Sounds like Armageddon. The coming of the Son of Man a.k.a. the second coming of Christ, the great resurrection, he will gather his elect from the four winds. So when is this going to happen? Well, Jesus said, no one knows the day nor the hour. 
But was there a time frame given? Perhaps even a certain year? Well, I'm going to be honest with you. I skipped a verse in there. I did. And I did it on purpose. Because I want to show you the difference that one verse makes. And this is the problem with eschatology teachers cherry-picking things. Okay? They skip over the verses that don't line up with their theology, and they make their, the verses fit their theology, even if the theology is wrong. Okay? So, here's what I skipped. 34. Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. This generation. The people that Jesus was talking to. Now here's an interesting fact. You have three Gospels recounting this conversation that Jesus has. And that's not uncommon. Many of the Gospels double up and triple up on the stories. Okay? But if you read the different accounts in the different Gospels of the same stories, you'll find that none of them is exactly identical. Right? There's always different nuances, different wording. It doesn't really change the meaning of it all, but everybody tells a story differently, right? I mean, if I told you a story here this morning, everybody would go home and try and repeat exactly what I said. You're not going to repeat exactly what I said. Everybody, going, everybody else tells it differently, right? Now, here's the interesting fact, though. Matthew, we're just reading, says it like this. Mark says it like this. Luke says it like this. They all say it, all three, word for word, punctuation for punctuation, identical. All three Gospels. Now, how, like what, is the chances of that? What that tells me is there's an importance on this line, right? It had to be right. And what had to be right is that Jesus said to the people he was standing in front of, all these terrible things that I'm telling you is going to happen, is going to happen in this generation. How long is a generation in the Bible? Does anyone know? 40 years. Okay? Generation is 40 years. Uh, if you want some backup for that, you go back to Exodus. And in Exodus, remember when they, uh, Moses brought the children of Israel out of uh, Egypt? They went in the wilderness, and they all started complaining, murmuring, we were better off in Egypt, at least we had three square meals a day type of thing, right? And God said, for that, this generation will not go to the promised land. You will stay in the wilderness. And so they, ran in, they, they walked around the wilderness for 40 years, right? 40 years is a generation in the Bible. So, that puts a different twist on eschatology, does it not? the so-called theory of, of the rapture, which we just read in, in Matthew 24. And I will say this, it's a theory, it's not a theology. There is not enough information in the Bible to make the rapture a theology. It is a theory. The tribulation, which is theology, Armageddon, which is theology, all those other things that Jesus said, all those disciples would be killed and everything, all that stuff... Jesus made very clear, this will happen in the next 40 years. This will not happen in the next 2,000 years. This will happen in 40 years. Okay? 
Now, I should, have, I should have thrown this disclaimer out this morning before I started talking. If you have very dogmatic views of eschatology, you're going to get really upset at me today. <laughs> you really are. I'm going to shake your world upside down here. But it took me two years to absorb this and be okay with this. So, I'm going to deviate now from the Bible and I'm going to take you into historical fact. All right? So first off, in the Bible, um, it is believed by scholars that Jesus said those words in Matthew 24 in about the year 30 AD. Okay? So I'm going to get into a bunch of dates here because it's important. So in 30 AD, Jesus says these words. Now, how long is the generation? 40 40 years. Okay? So what's 30 and 40? 70, okay? So now, I go to the history books, and I ask myself, what happened around 70 AD? Because there had to be something major happen if Jesus said it's going to happen, right? And I found, guess what? There was what was called, and is well known in the history books, as the Jewish-Roman War, okay? And the Jewish-Roman War started in the year 66 AD, and was actually started by the Jews. They started the war. Now, in their defense at the time, Judea was under the rule of Rome, just as it had been in the days of Jesus. But there was a group of soldiers who were called the Judean Zealots who got tired of this, and they decided they were going to try and kick the Roman soldiers out of their country. And so they started fighting. So Rome responded by sending an army. Now, the emperor of the day was a guy by the name of Nero. Nero, Claudius, Caesar, Augustus, Damasius. Okay? Now, Nero was seen as the most ruthless emperor ever in the, who took power in Rome. Okay? Here's some history on him. He was the stepson of Claudius, who was the previous emperor. Claudius was actually his great uncle. Uh, Nero's uh, natural father died when Nero was three years old. His mother eventually married Claudius, and Claudius adopted Nero. And so Nero became the stepson of Claudius, the current emperor at the time. Now, his, Nero's mother um, seemed to be quite, quite the lady. Uh, <laughs> she schemed to have Nero appointed as emperor when he was only 17 years old. In the age of 50, at uh, the year 54 AD. It is believed that in order to achieve that, she actually poisoned Claudius and killed him. And then she maneuvered with the Senate to have Nero appointed as emperor. Then, uh, actually, just the year before that, Nero married his stepsister, who was Claudius's daughter. And then in the year 59 AD, Uh, Nero and his mother had a falling out, and I think Nero saw that she was scheming some other scam, and he had her killed. All right, so he killed his own mother. Then later, he got tired of his wife, so he killed her. Then he married his mistress, who was already pregnant. Uh, The first baby died at the age of three months, and before she could give birth to the second, it was believed that he kicked her to death. Nice guy, right? All right. Next, 
Um, he married two men on separate occasions. Yes, Nero married two men. The first he married to take the role of his husband. And in a weird twist, Nero took the role of the bride at the wedding ceremony by wearing a bridal veil on his face. Okay? Then he married another man who he married for the purpose of playing the role of Nero's wife. And then, while still married to those two, he actually also married a third wife. So he was actually married to two men and one woman all at the same time. I would have found that family meeting kind of interesting. It's not really sure how that would have played out. But anyways, the other thing that Nero's famous for is that he was not happy with the way Rome was built. He wanted wider roads, he wanted nicer houses, and instead of going through the proper processes of buying up properties and tearing them down and rebuilding, he actually just took a torch to it all and burned half of Rome down so that he could rebuild it himself. That displaced thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people, his own people, right? All these things he did before the age of 30. He was a busy guy. Now, in the year 66, which is when the Judean zealots were starting to cause him problems over in Judea, he sent an army over there to assert his power over Judea. The army was led by uh, a man by the name of Titus Vespasian. Uh, he landed his army in northern Judea, which is basically up by the area called Galilee, the area where Jesus was raised. And so he began his assault on the area of Galilee, he, he conquered Galilee, and he began moving down the, the coastline along the Mediterranean Sea, conquering everything in his way. He spent basically two years over there fighting all the regions of Judea, with the exception of Jerusalem, because Jerusalem was the most heavily fortified city probably ever known to mankind at the time. It had three major walls that had to be breached in order to uh, destroy Judea. There's no way one army alone could have done it. So he spent over two years uh, conquering everything in his wake. In the meantime, Nero was busy at home, burning down half of his own city. And also in 67, Nero orders the execution of both Peter and Paul. Then in mid-68, Nero orders the destruction of Jerusalem, in which case he'd have to dispatch more men. Before the men could be dispatched, um, the Senate got together and they said, you, you, you're burning down our city, you're causing all kinds of crazy things happening here to the Romans, not just our enemies, but to the Romans. So the Senate took a vote, declared him an enemy of the state, which was punishable by death. Okay? So, um, in June 68 AD, Nero commits suicide to avoid being captured by his own armies and put to death. All right? Now, in late 68 to 69 AD, it's known as the year of the four emperors. There was actually uh, three short-term emperors. Uh, one lasted eight months, one lasted three months, one lasted seven months. And there was a lot of turmoil in Rome. All right? And then eventually, Vespasian leaves Judea, comes back to Rome, meets with the Senate. The Senate designates him as the next emperor. So now Vespasian is in charge of Rome and all its, all its armies. What did he do? 
He picks up where Nero leaves off. He sends armies back to Jerusalem. Not just armies, he sent four armies back to Jerusalem, 80,000 soldiers. Three of the armies camps out on the, uh, outside the western gate of Jerusalem. One army camps out on the eastern side of Jerusalem. Uh, the western side was kind of like the main entrance, then the eastern side was kind of like the back door. And then there's a bunch of other gates in between. They set up outposts all around those gates. And they put um, Jerusalem under siege. Now, I'm going to start kind of throwing some of this eschatology in there as we go. All right? Um, so now we're starting to look at this bit called that Jesus said, One, one's taken, the other's left behind. What makes sense to me is this. Jesus warned that this was going to happen in Matthew 24. He said, this is coming. Destruction of Jerusalem is coming. The temples are going to be destroyed. Everything's going to be destroyed. When that happens, Jesus said, run for the hills. Now, the propensity back then is going to be for people to run for Jerusalem, because Jerusalem was heavily fortified, right? And Jesus knew Jerusalem was going to be destroyed. And he's telling them, don't run for, to Jerusalem. Run for the hills and hide. And so what I'm thinking here is that, and let me clarify, not just what I'm thinking, it just seems to come out this way if you really study this in depth, and that is this. When the, when the armies are marching towards Jerusalem, the people that are out in their fields, working their fields, are going to look up and say, holy crap, we better get behind those walls, right? And one of them may take off running towards Jerusalem, the army's directive is to destroy Jerusalem. So guess what's going to happen to that one guy that starts peeling off towards Jerusalem? They're going to fire a few arrows out there and they're going to kill him because you'd be deemed as an enemy, right? The guy that keeps his head down, keeps working in his fields, the army's walked right on past. Okay? Once taken, the other's left behind. It's the total opposite to the rapture theology. We're taken is a good thing and being left behind is a bad thing. This is the opposite. The one's taken is his life has been taken by the soldiers. The one left behind, the army ignored when they walked past him, and he was left behind. It's an interesting concept that I've seen many times where if there's a misinterpretation of the Bible, it always seems that always the opposite, exact opposite seems to be true. Or it's misinterpreted to the exact opposite of the truth. Right? So, then, then what happens is the armies are set up in, in uh, April of 70 AD. They bring Jerusalem under complete siege. Nobody goes in. Nobody comes out. Now, the sheer size of Jerusalem, from what I'm seeing in, in the history, there could have been as many as 1.2 million people living in Jerusalem at the time. Okay? The armies put them under complete siege. Nothing goes in, nothing comes out. In the midst of it all, there was also some infighting in Jerusalem. And the result of the infighting, somehow a lot of their food stores caught on fire. Okay? So from April to the end of July, there's no food coming in for that amount of people. All right? So what happens is, all of a sudden, you've got mass starvation. You've got disease starting to break out. Do you remember that line that uh, Larry Norman wrote 
people think it's in the Bible, it's actually not. It says, uh, a piece of bread will buy a bag of gold. Remember that? It's that famous song that Larry Norman wrote. I, I looked it up. It's not actually in the Bible. But anyways, um, what was happening then is people were actually starving. And Jesus said there'd be famines and whatnot, right? But people were actually starving to death. And there's actually historical documents that say that if, there, if anybody had a little bit of grass in the yard, which would be a very rare thing because it's a desert climate, right? But even if there was a little bit of grass in somebody's yard, they would rip a little handful of it and sell it for two weeks' wages. At the time, people were literally chewing on shoe leather and belts to try and satisfy their hunger. Starvation was that rampant. Now, the Romans then began their, their uh, attack in late July. They got through the first wall in a couple of weeks. They got through the second wall in a couple of weeks. And then they came to the third wall. And that third wall is the wall that's guarding the temple and the, the palace and whatnot. Okay? At the end of August, they breached the walls of the third, uh, the third wall. All right? The first thing they did, and this is very important to understand, the first thing they did was they destroyed the archives. The second thing they did was they killed the priests. The third thing they did was they ransacked the temple. Now, what they did is they went into the temple, and there's sacred items in the Jewish temple that the public never even saw. It was only for the eyes of the priests, only for the use of the priests. There's things like the table of showbread, all the things that they used in all their daily um, rituals that they did. Okay? The soldiers went into the temple, took all their sacred items out, and paraded them down the streets, and then eventually boxed them up and sent them back to Rome. All right? And then on August the 30th, A.D., they burned down the temple. Uh, victory was declared on September 8th, 70 A.D. Once victory was declared... The Romans went around and gathered up all the survivors. There was 97,000 survivors uh, living in Jerusalem that survived the war. And of those 97,000, they separated the able-bodied men, sent them back to Rome to face the gladiators. The rest, which would be mostly women and children, they sold into slavery. Now, the death toll. I should back up. Let me back up. The temple. Remember I said they burned the temple down? And you remember that Jesus said not one stone will be left on another? The reason for that was that the Jews had literally painted the interior walls with pure gold. Okay? And so when the Romans burnt it down, after it cooled off, the Romans went in there and they literally picked up every stone that had been used in the walls of the temple and scraped the gold off it. All right, And they salvage every little ounce of gold that they can get out of the temple and they box it up and ship it back to Rome and it is believed that that gold was used to finance the building of the Roman Colosseum that still stands today. At the time that that Roman Colosseum didn't exist, it was built shortly after this. So there were other smaller Colosseums at the time where the gladiators operated out of, which is why the, Christian, the Jewish men were sent back to face the gladiators. But they believe the gold was used to, to build the, the great Colosseum that's there now. The death toll. The historian uh, Flavius Josephus, I can't believe I got that out. That's pretty good, eh? 
I won't do it again. <laughs> Josephus, uh, who himself was a Jew, but he defected and went over on the Roman side. And he's, uh, he, he wrote a lot of the history in, in, during this time. Josephus calculated the death toll at 1.1 million people from Jerusalem. Now, I've read other accounts. Um, there's other historians that say, no, that's not accurate, but they would not come up with another alternative number. I did find one histo- other historian who claims that 600,000 fell by the sword, but that there were hundreds of thousands of others that died through starvation and disease. So at the end of the day, the, the two historians are probably still coming up with about the same number. Okay. Now, here's the question. What do you do with 1.1 million bodies? You need, you need some room for that, right? Okay. Just to put this into perspective, I checked the census for this area back in 2014, the Tri-City area, Kitchener, Cambridge, Waterloo. The census said there was 514,000 people living in this area. This is twice that. That is just astounding, right? So the Romans gathered up all these dead bodies, probably over a million bodies, and they threw them all into the Valley of Himnom. Now the Valley of Himnom was also referred to as Gehenna. Gehenna was the city landfill for Jerusalem. What they did is they always gathered up the garbage, they took it out to Gehenna, and they lit it on fire and burnt it all. So now we have the Jews gathering up all the dead bodies, and they say, well, city landfill's over there, let's just throw them all over there and burn them. So they hauled over a million bodies, tossed them into Gehenna, and burnt them all. Now Gehenna is defined as the uh, destination of the wicked. This is something that's been misunderstood for many, many years, especially in North America. Gehenna is not hell. Gehenna is Gehenna. It's a landfill. Okay? It's a landfill. And we're going to look a little bit more at that in a few minutes here. So once, once they got um, Jerusalem all, all cleaned up, the Romans continued their battles throughout the rest of Judea, culminating at Masada, which was their last stronghold in the year 73 AD. Uh, defeating Masada was a feat in itself. It was a mountaintop uh, stronghold. If you've ever seen a documentary on it, it's quite interesting. The Romans actually had to build a big ramp of a road going up to get their battering rams up there because it was only accessible by a little walking path. So in late 73 AD, the Romans got their battering rams up there, broke through the wall of Masada only to find that everyone had committed suicide rather than being captured by the Romans. So at the end of 73 AD, the war was declared to be over and the Roman soldiers packed up and went home. Now, how many years is that? Seven. How many years is the tribulation? Seven. Well, this is starting to sound interesting, isn't it? All right. Now, let's get into the eschatology side of things. I don't profess to be an expert in Revelation. I don't profess to understand the half of it. And I'm going to be honest with you, 
If anybody stands in front of you and says they understand all of Revelation, they're full of it. <laughs> Honestly, they are. Okay? Because here's the problem with Revelation. There's a certain amount that fits our, spirit, or our physical world, but the majority of it is just swimming in spirit world imagery, which none of us can really understand, because we don't live in the spirit world, we live in the physical world. Right? So there's a lot of the spirit world imagery. But here's what I've picked out of this. The beast, whose number is 666, initiates the tribulation. Well, who is the beast? I went to great lengths to describe to you Nero's character for a reason. Do you know that Nero had a nickname? Do you know that he was so ruthless, even his own people called him the beast? Nero was called the beast. Do you know that if you do the numeric calculation of Nero's full name, it adds up to guess what? 666. But here's another interesting fact that I came across just a couple weeks ago. Do you know that the 666 number was only in the Greek Bible, but in the Latin Bible it was different? The Latin Bible said the number would be 616. And do you know that if you spell Nero's full name in Latin, guess what it adds up to? 616. What's the chances of that? Yeah, it gave me goosebumps. I'm like, holy crap. So here's the thing. If you start dissecting the whole story about the beast in Revelation, you'll find that the beast comes in, begins the tribulation, but partway through, the beast dies. Yeah, something they never really taught, told us when they were teaching us all this stuff back when I was younger. The beast died partway through the tribulation. Then a second beast comes, and the Bible says the second beast is lesser than the first beast, but he honors the first beast. So what happens here? Nero starts the tribulation, dies partway through, Vespasian comes in, who served under Nero, he was one of Nero's generals, he becomes emperor, and he picks up where Nero left off, therefore honoring the first one by finishing his work for him. Right? You got goosebumps yet? Okay. Now, Here's where it gets even more interesting. Remember how we said that John wrote Revelation, right? Now, John wrote Revelation from the island of Patmos where he was exiled for surviving his death uh, sentence. In the year, most likely, 66 AD, it's possible he could have written it in 68 or somewhere in between. But what was happening during that time? The war. Okay? Now, did John recognize that this was actually happening when he wrote Revelation? Well, I came across, across a couple of interesting verses. In his opening statement, verse 9, chapter 1, he says, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation. Now, if the tribulation still has to happen yet, if, the, if we're going to see the tribulation in our lifetime, how is John my brother and companion in it? John's been dead 2,000 years. Right? So John says, I'm your brother and your companion in the tribulation. Which, by the way, tribulation is a bad interpretation of that word. It's actually the, the better interpretation of that word is sufferings. The word that they use in Greek actually translates better to sufferings. Okay? 
So then later in that same chapter, 10 verses later, Jesus is talking to John. And he's telling him to write down all these things I'm showing you. Right? He, Jesus gave John this vision. He says, write them all down. And he says it this way. He says, write down what you have seen, both the things that are now happening and the things that will happen. Well, if the tribulation wasn't happening, what's John got to write? Right? Write down the things that are now happening and will happen later. Well, what's going to happen later? The second beast comes in. The first beast is already there. Right? And so John writes that down, and then he continues to write about the second beast. Whew! Wow. Um, okay. So what were the end times about? Now, yes, I used that in a past tense. I don't know if you picked up on my uh, sermon title, said eschatology, past, present, or future. It's everybody says eschatology is future, right? What were the end times all about? Well, it does not mean a time precluding the end of the world. It was about bringing a final end to the old covenant. That's what the end times were about. So what happened is, God made a covenant with Abraham many years before this. About, uh, I don't know, something like 1,500 years before this, right? He made a covenant with Abraham and Abraham's descendants. The only way to break a covenant is one of the people that made a covenant has to die. All right? And since the covenant was made between Abraham and his descendants, that means when Abraham died, the covenant survived him because it went on to his descendants. So that meant, in order for it to be broken, God has to die. Now here's a real interesting fact. Um, if you do an in-depth study of the Old Testament, you will find that there are many names assigned to God throughout the Old Testament. Okay, But one of those names is Lord with a capital L. All right? Scholars agree, and I agree, and I think this is awesome. Whenever the Old Testament referred to Lord capital L, it was actually talking about Jesus himself. Yes, Jesus is in the Old Testament. Okay, When you read the account of the creation of the Old Covenant between God and Abraham, the word for God that was used in that whole story was Lord, capital L. Okay, That means that Jesus made the covenant with Abraham. So that meant when Jesus came back and died on the cross, the Old Covenant died with him. All right? Now, Jesus basically had two objectives when he came. He came to fulfill the covenant... He said that many times. Fulfill means bring it to its end. All right? And he also came to bring us life, which is something the old covenant couldn't do. Okay? So, Jesus' death on the cross brought a legal end to the old covenant, but then Jesus in chapter 24 tells them, I'm going to give you 40 years to figure this out, a generation. Okay? The old covenant is dead with me, but I'm going to give you 40 years to figure it out. And change the way you think. Okay? At the end of the 40 years, I'm going to wipe it off the map. We're going to do away with it. Now, how did Jesus do away with it? Well, through, through the Jewish-Roman war, he did away with it. But specifically, the priests were killed. So there's no one there to perform the rituals. Okay? But, remember I said, keep this in mind. This is important. The Romans destroyed the archives. The archives were the only way to support new, uh, uh, designation of new priests because the priests had to be a direct descendant of the first high priest, Aaron. 
And without a written archive, a family tree, so to speak, without that to reference, nobody could prove who was eligible to be another high priest. And so the priesthood died on the day that the Romans destroyed the archives. There is no more priesthood since then. Okay? That is why to this very day, there is no such thing as a Jewish priest. Only Jewish rabbis. Okay? Rabbis are not priests. Rabbis are teachers. Okay? Uh, if, you know in the Bible it says, you know, Jesus differentiates between Sadducees and Pharisees. The Pharisees were the rabbis. The Sadducees were the priests. The Sadducees, a.k.a. the priests, were completely wiped away and will never, ever be able to, to resurrect the priesthood again because the archives are gone. Okay? That is how Jesus brought a final end to the Old Covenant. And it actually boggles my mind in one way, but another way it doesn't because when Jesus died on the cross, what happened at the temple? Anyone tell me? The veil was ripped in half, right? Which meant that the Holy of Holies was basically destroyed. Okay? Now, um, I'm going to pass over that for a minute. I'll get back to that. Um, so are the end times over? Yes. The end times are over. Which is hard for me to accept. Because it was pounded in my head. Day after day after day. We're in the end times. We're in the end times. No, we're not. The end times are over. The end times ended in 70 AD. In fact, if you want to put a date to it, I say the end times were ended on August 30th, 70 AD, when the archives and the temple were destroyed. That was the end of the end times. Now, if you want to argue with me and say, well, you know, 73, 73 AD was the end of the war, so maybe that was it, I'm okay with that. You know, if you want to massage the dates a little bit in there, or whatever, I'm okay with that. But the reality is, the end times were over at this period in history. Okay? We are not in the end times. What are we in? The Bible mentions the ages to come. Right? We're in the ages to come. We are not in the end times. The old covenant is dead and gone. Okay, but Jesus said, well, heaven and earth is going to pass away. And then there's other parts of, like Revelation, where it says, you know, he's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. Right? What about that? Is this a new heaven and a new earth that we're in now? No, but that's not what it meant. And this is where understanding the language of the day comes into effect and the nuances of how they spoke and everything. Uh, we need to know those things to, know, to understand what some of these things mean. So Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away. Now, did heaven and earth pass away? Yes, it did, actually. Is there new heaven and earth? Yes, there is. And you're like, well, what are you talking about? Here's what it meant, okay? To the Jews, first off, they believed that God could not exist outside of heaven. They believed that God had to be in heaven to exist. So when God gave them the plans to build the temple, he put this room called the Holy of Holies, separated by this huge veil. And that was the place on earth where God could reside. Okay? So the Jews referred to the Holy of Holies as heaven. They also referred to the rest of the temple as earth. Okay? 
So Jesus starts off in chapter 24. He says, these temples will be destroyed. And later he says, heaven and earth is going to pass away. He was talking about the temple. Heaven, the Holy of Holies, and the rest of the temple, earth, will pass away. They'll be destroyed. Okay? That's really getting interesting now, isn't it? So, what about the new heaven and earth? Matthew chapter 21, Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven will be taken away from the Jews. Because remember back in the Old Testament, if you wanted an encounter with God, you had to go through the Jews. It was basically the way that God's word was written. I don't believe it was quite like that, but it's the way that God's word was written. But if you wanted an encounter with God, you had to go through the Jews. They owned the kingdom of God. All right? Jesus said in Matthew 21, that will be taken away from them, and it's going to be given to another nation. Well, did that happen, and who was it given to? Yes, I believe it happened in 70 AD. God destroyed all these Jews, the Sadducees, the false prophets, the false teachers. He took the kingdom away from the Jews, and he gave it to another nation. And no, it's not Rome that he gave it to. Scholars believe he gave it to a spiritual nation, led by none other than himself. That is why the second coming. At the end of the 40 years, Jesus came back to earth, not in physical form, but in the spirit form, spirit world, with a spiritual nation that's handed the kingdom of God. And I haven't looked them up. I know there's verses in there that say, you know, that the kingdom of God belongs to Christ, right? The kingdom of God is given to Christ. He comes back to earth and begins a spiritual nation. The new heaven and earth, remember, um, in the Jews' mind, God cannot uh, occupy anything outside of heaven. Well, where does God live now? In us. Paul said, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? So heaven is now living in us, and we are the dust of the earth. Heaven and earth is in us. We are the new temple. Wow. Wow. All right. Sorry, I need a breath. Woo. Um, what about this, the, the wars, the earthquakes, the stars falling from the skies? Well, obviously, there's all kinds of wars right then. Rome was conquering everything in sight. There was wars everywhere. Lots of resistance to Rome. They'd conquer a, a country, and then the country would come back and try to counterattack and everything, and wars going on constantly. That's, that's, that's a no-brainer. Earthquakes. You know, if you look back in the history books, the decades of the 50s and 60s AD, there was an astounding amount of earthquakes. It's recorded in history. One of the most concentrated times of earthquakes ever that this world has ever seen. Okay? So earthquakes, off the list. Stars falling from the skies. Well, here's another really cool fact. Do you know that the Jews used the term stars falling from the skies for a very specific reason? It was an everyday term for them. The very important people of their day, the religious leaders, their top-end politicians, all the really important people, they referred to as the stars of the skies. That's what they called them. They're the stars of the sky. And they had a very specific reason and definition for using the term falling from the, the stars falling from the skies. It actually meant something very specific to them. It meant this. 
that those stars of the sky that they refer to, all their important people in their communities, falling from the sky meant that they would fall from their place into hypocrisy and not just not just a basic normal hypocrisy, but a, a hypocrisy that's described as they know the truth, but they choose to live a different way. All right? Now, why did the practice of the Old Covenant not stop when Jesus died? Because the religious leaders of the day chose to ignore what Jesus was telling them, and by this statement... I would have to say that deep down in their hearts, they knew he was right, they knew he was telling the truth, but they chose to ignore it, and instead chose to continue living the Hippocratic life of the old covenant ways. The stars fell from the skies. Cool. All right. All right. So, one last thing. What was Jesus doing in the temple in Matthew chapter 23, remember I opened and I said, oh yeah, back in the previous chapter there was some stuff going on here too. Well, Jesus was given the religious leaders of the day a real stern tongue lashing. And he says this, Woe to you, teachers of the law of Pharisees, you hypocrites, you snakes, you brood uh, vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Now that's a very poor, poor interpretation. I'm sorry I used it. I was having a hard time finding an interpretation that used the proper wording without giving you something like Young's literal translation. Because Young's literal translation, which is an identical word-for-word uh, translation of the Greek, says, doesn't say being condemned to hell, it says the judgment of Gehenna. How will you avoid the judgment of Gehenna? Okay. It is not hell. The judgment of Gehenna was the fact that Jesus gave them 40 years to straighten things out, and at the end of it, the judgment of Gehenna. The judgment of Gehenna was the Roman army's coming in, they're going to slaughter you guys, and they're going to throw you in Gehenna and burn you. That was the judgment of Gehenna. That is not hell. That is Gehenna. We have so misinterpreted hell. Gehenna was a real place. The judgment of Gehenna was a real thing, and it happened in 70 AD. Okay? All right, verse 35. And so upon you, he's talking to the who? Teachers of the law and Pharisees and hypocrites. He says, upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth from the blood of the righteous man Abel, Oh, I got to get caught up here. From the blood of the righteous man Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. So what Jesus is saying is all the righteous men that you guys killed, going right back to the first one, Abel, right up to the very last one who you just killed the other day, which was this guy, poor guy by the name of Zechariah, not the Zechariah and whatever in the tree, Zechariah, son of Berechiah, who you murdered between the temple and the altar. Now, if you do a little study on what's between the temple and the altar, that's their place of prayer. So more than likely, this poor guy is down on his knees praying, and they side-cocked him and killed him. Caught him by surprise. 
And Jesus is saying, every righteous man is on you guys. This generation. I'm going to deal with you guys. He says, truly I tell you, all this will come on what? This generation. Wow. So the verse I read in 24 about coming on this generation is not the first time Jesus said it. He said, I'm going to take all this out on all you guys in this generation. You guys will face Gehenna. You will be slaughtered, you'll be thrown in the landfill, and you will be burned. They will not be thrown in hell. They'll be thrown in Gehenna and burned. Wow. Oh, hey, that's it. Cool. This has been one heck of a journey for me. Uh, and I, you could probably tell I, I get a little bit excited talking about this because it is such a refreshing change from what I was taught as a kid, how I was raised. The end times are over. The pressure's off. We're living in the ages to come. We are the new temple of God. We are heaven and earth in the vernacular that the Jews used at the time. It's just so relieving to understand this in what I believe is a, a much more accurate context than the whole rapture theology uh, and future tribulation, future Armageddon, all these kinds of things, they're not future. They happened in 70 AD. They're past. All right? We're in the ages to come. Um, I, hope, I hope this is, I mean, this has been one heck of a journey for me. Uh, I hope this really uh, gets you thinking. Uh, there's a lot, a lot of information out there that you can research to find all this, like I said, I did not get this from another ministry. This is my own personal research. And there was a reason why I wanted to stay away from other ministries. And that's because they all have their own take on all these things. And I didn't want to get clouded in all that. I wanted to do a total reboot, try and erase everything that I learned and try and start fresh and try and figure this all out. And it was just an amazing journey to find what I found. I'm not done the journey. I still have more things to figure out. But the pressure's off. Right? The pressure's off. And I hope for you, if you were raised in that sort of dogmatic, future eschatology type of teaching, I hope that somehow today has helped you in getting that pressure off. We no longer have to live under that burden of always having to uh, critically watch our steps day by day to make sure that we don't miss the rapture and all these crazy things that we were taught as kids. Um, we, can, we are free to live. Remember Jesus said, I've come to give you life. We are free to live. Doesn't mean riotlessly, doesn't mean carelessly. It means we can enjoy life now. The pressure's off. Right? Let's close in prayer. Lord, I thank you so much for the love that you have for each and every person in this place today. I pray, Father, that you will continue to show your love in greater ways day after day, week after week, month after month. Teach us how to truly live in you. Your name I pray. Amen.